Hello again and welcome. You are listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. I'm Andrew Rushby and as always I'm joined by Hannah Wakeford and Hugh Osborne. In this episode of Exocast, we're going to cover a few of the month's most interesting papers, uh, well, kind of two months worth, if you will, from August to September 2021, uh, each focused on a single interesting development, uh, except maybe in the case of Hannah, who's got a few interesting developments to, to chat. So I guess who's first up? Who should we start with? Well, I want to hear about your paper because I feel like that's going to be the most juicy discussion. Yeah, <laughs> actually, I do feel like this is probably the most headline grabbing news uh, of the last couple of months. And that was the potential identification of a purportedly new class of habitable planet. So this uh, paper is called you. Habitability no. and Biosignatures. Like, <laughs> hang on, guys. <laughs> Habitability and Biosignatures of Hycean Worlds. And it's by uh, Madhu Sedan et al. 2021. So introducing the concept here of uh, Hycean exoplanets, which are water-rich worlds, saturated interiors with planetary scale oceans overlain by a thick hydrogen atmosphere. Their densities place them as intermediate, somewhere between the rocky terrestrial worlds, or the, or the super-Earths, and the mini-Neptunes. And according to the authors of this new paper, which was published recently in the Astrophysical Journal, these planets might have masses as much as 10 times that of Earth and radii approaching 2.6 times that of our planet. So um, I guess regular listeners, or those in the know, would realise that there's probably quite a few exoplanets that currently fall into this regime, including some of the big, uh, big news items from recently, like K218b. So the premise of this new paper uh, is that due to the higher pressures and the hazy hydrogen atmosphere, these planets might have atmospheric temperatures, very, very hot, 200 degrees Celsius potentially, but that their extensive oceans might remain within habitable limits uh, for temperature, at least. Uh, furthermore, because of the higher densities and more iron, potentially radiogenic material in their uh, in their interior, even non-irradiated or what they've called these cold Hycean planets. So these are ones that are maybe very, very far away from their star or potentially even free floating. Who knows? Um, they might actually have sufficient internal flux to remain at least on the boundary of some sort of potential temperature habitability, uh, which, to be fair, isn't a new finding and is kind of in line with earlier research uh, on this particular topic. So one thing I was uh, reading this paper, I found, and you know, as a defender of the habitable zone concept, I feel like I'm going against myself here. I found that they directly one to one correlated being habitable with having liquid water, right? Yeah, yeah. I was I was going to get to that, but it's a good point in that their particular considerations for habitability were th almost entirely thermal, uh, assuming you know, I say reasonable pressures, but between one and thousand bar. Um, were in the habitable range for their temperatures and their pressures. Um, so yeah, it's basically, um, for, I would say for liquid water, but you know, water's phase <laughs> doesn't go to a thousand bar, really. I think we were like 10. Yeah, 10 and there was no mention of high pressure ices. What? <laughs> there, there was no mention of what, sorry? Of high pressure ices. No, right? I mean, yeah, there wasn't, yeah. There, there, there could well be ice surfaces and ice like cores that, that mean that there isn't much liquid water. Yeah, that's anyway, I'll let you continue. 
Okay. Yeah, there'll be there'll be plenty of chances to jump in here because I think we'll probably have quite a bit to discuss about this paper. But let's just introduce some of the methods and then we'll, we can go from there. So yeah. another potential class for these or consideration for this class of planet is the the day side to night side temperature gradient or, or the heat heat distribution around that world when it's tidally locked. I mean, we could potentially conceive of these around much uh, much brighter, hotter stars, but around the small M and K dwarf stars, these might be synchronously rotating and tidally locked to their planet. Uh, sorry, to their star. So how might you know that? heat move from the highly irradiated star side, uh, star facing hemisphere to that of the frozen anti-stellar side. Um, and in the, in the paper, the team tested a, a, a range of different potential redistribution profiles, if you will, we can get to those a bit, um, which suggests that the habitable conditions might persist when the day, when the night side, sorry, when the day side temperatures can be up to 510 Kelvin, there could be habitable conditions on the night side of these worlds, which is very, very warm on the day side. There could be, with inefficient heat transfer, um, be uh, somewhat habitable conditions on the on, on the anti-stellar side. Uh, if this is efficient, it can be down at around 300 Kelvin. Um, so there's some uncertainty within that estimate. And I think a lot of that uncertainty comes from the particular climate model, maybe, that was used to make these estimates of these determinations. So it's a one-dimensional di one radiative convective model uh, developed by the authors over several papers. They've used them in, in, in several other work. Uh, and in terms of its complexity, if you will, uh, it's kind of on par with, with other uh, formulations that have been used to make estimates about the traditional habitable zone. And in fact, that is one of the fo focuses of, of the paper, is this Hycean habitable zone. Um, so these models, while they are powerful in terms of how many of them you can run and the ensembles you can do, they're less computationally rigorous than some of the 3D uh, GCMs that we can apply to problems like this. Um, now in this in this particular formulation, as I mentioned, habitability is, is defined almost entirely thermally uh, and the range between 273 and 395 Kelvin, which is a wide range as well, um, with very, very high pressures up to nearly a thousand bar. Um, the interior model that they've used, because we're looking at not just the atmosphere here, of course, um, we need to think about the interior of this planet uh, as well, is a, a standard kind of four-layer uh, geophysical uh, equation of state parameterization, nothing too nothing too fancy there, that's often used actually in the study of much larger, larger worlds, but with the assumption of an Earth-like core composition. So again, valuable models for, for exoplanet science in general, and I've certainly used and built a lot of these myself. Um, but when it comes to, I think, the complex three-dimensional plus time realm of atmospheric circulation, thinking about heat transport, and even vertical temperature profiles on, on tidally locked worlds, it might, it seems unlikely that radiative convective models like this would be capturing everything that's going on, capturing all the physics um, that, that's happening in the atmospheres alone. And I think a particular issue for this is clouds. Now, of course, we love clouds here on Exocast. We're always talking about clouds in their various guises. Um, and in this case, the authors have adopted a, a, a haze coefficient for their radiative convective model or, or an opacity formulation, if you will, which, while arguably the best approach for a model like this, is definitely going to be missing out or maybe underrepresenting some of the features uh, that you know might be forming in these planets' atmospheres as clouds or hazes. Um, and also, additionally, the parameterization that they used for the internal heat flux for the cold Hycean planets, those are the planets that are maybe too far from their star, not the dark ones, which are, you know, the tidally locked worlds, but the cold ones, which are far away, that's pretty poorly constrained. Uh, you know, they, they're estimating basically a 25 Kelvin input from the interior of the planet, um, and that's going to be pretty pretty const constant and not not because of the work that was done here, but because we don't have that many plants to sam sample, we're not re particularly sure if that's really going to be accurate when it comes down to, you know, actual geophysics down uh, down the line. And it's probably dependent on lots of other things, like where that planet was formed and the metallicity of its host star. 
Now, the thing for me, the big crux here, um, was c- c- given the, the this new term that, that had been invented, the Hycean planet, which is a combination of hydrogen and ocean, there was hardly, uh, I might be being quite harsh here, but there was hardly any mention of the actual ocean in this. Um, so the ocean was kind of treated, even though it was supposed to be the kind of primary medium or like where the habitability would be, this is going to be the habitable ocean world. Um, there was not really much consideration given to describing what the structure of the ocean model was, or if there was an ocean model at all. Uh, in fact, my understanding was that it's just a boundary condition for the atmospheric model, right? You have the four layer interior composition, um, kind of, kind of model. Uh, and then over that, you've got your atmosphere and you're just use, using the ocean surface as basically a place to measure your temperature and your pressure. And then there's some H2 flux that's being emitted as a function of flux, uh, you know, incoming. So I think given the crucial role that, that ocean circulation plays on our planet, for sure, and that we're getting some indications can be very important for tidally locked worlds or just any planet that has an ocean that can move heat around it, the ocean heat distribution is going to be super, super important and giving some consideration to how that's going to move on a planet like this, where there's complex, uh, maybe multi- different phases of ice, if these are very, very high pressure worlds. I, I think that's something that's that's definitely missing here when it comes to thinking about how this might maintain long-term planetary habitability. Any thoughts, team? But it's on, it's not just that. about the heat transport in the ocean. It's about the exchange of materials with that ocean and the exchange of materials that ocean has with whatever is in the layer below it. Exactly right. And that is a hugely important aspect of our planet. And it's a hugely important aspect of a lot of the work that's been d- presented in the literature uh, in terms of putting these big hydrogen envelopes around a, a world and forming that world. Uh, we saw a couple of exocasts ago, a paper looking at the formation of oceans due to interaction of hydrogen with a lava surface. I remember that. That was a cool paper. And, yeah. you know, we see it on, on our planet, the interaction between different aspects of an ocean, lava, and the atmosphere, they exchange material. It is an exchange of material. And as Hugh mentioned before, also thinking about the formation of ices under high pressures. In fact, the formation of a high pressure ice layer, so like ice six or something, like what we see on on Ganymede, can actually prevent material from being shared between those inner layers and the atmosphere, which can then inhibit habitable conditions. So there is a huge amount of complexity that is fundamentally missing from this model. Now, we're not saying that simple models aren't helpful. They are. They're helpful for understanding first order conditions, but they're implying and inferring 15th order conditions from something that that isn't equipped to, to describe that yeah and i think the the problem i had with the paper is that okay if it was a simple theoretical paper about mini neptunes and uh, atmospheres i i would have been fine with it but they went big they went let's let's create an entire class of planet that that we have defined and let's um you know, and a lot of the, I mean, I guess some of, some of the scientific um, journalism was good, but some of it was was almost quoting it as if these guys found these planets. You know, they they detected a whole new class of planet, and there's no there's no detection happening here. In fact, there's not even any evidence that a, a single Hycean planet exists. Right? 
Because all and there's we no, have... nothing presented in the paper that allows you to make that conclusion anyway. Yeah. Yeah, but all, the, all we have for these planets is a mass and a radius. So we know something about the density, and we know that they're slightly less dense than rock. But we don't know what that, that, that is that's causing the, the density to be lower. It could be volatiles, it could be just hydrogen over a rocky surface. It could be uh, any number of gases. You know, that, there's, I guess there's a um, Copernican principle that tells us water is common here and, and maybe water is common elsewhere. But, I mean, we have one ocean of water and, and we would need tens of thousands of Earth oceans to fill the sort of... Um, uh, the 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 mass gap that we see in these mini Neptunes, uh, if there wasn't you know a big hydrogen atmosphere as well. So, I mean, that's that's one thing that really annoyed me is the fact that they basically defined a new term and called all of these planets, which we have no evidence that they are uh, ocean rich. Um, they called them Hycean and uh, and owned it and and got a lot of press for doing so. Um, so that's that that's my uh, well, one of the problems I had with it. Yeah, there's some interesting science communication issues here that are being presented, certainly. And I, I mean, I have it in the script here. You guys, you, obviously, you can see it. I've said, you know, do they even exist? I would suggest that there's nothing really that that new being presented here. Um, it's just some really good PR work and and some branding for a uh, our, you know, radio to convector model uh, with with some interesting results. I mean, I'm sure we've certainly hypothesized ocean worlds exist for some time, um, and there's a lot of interesting modeling research that's been done on those worlds with much more complex. Um, I'm trying to be diplomatic here, <laughs> much more, much more complex and involved models that have, have shown just as interesting results, shall we say, without then making the additional uh, leap to the new class of, of world. Yeah, and I guess and it's not not just a new class, right? It's a new mm-hmm. class that is defined as being habitable. Yeah, because the the water is there, and that's. You know, if 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 making a new class out of this mass radius regime is you know questionable, then then saying everything with liquid water in that regime is is habitable is just wrong. <laughs> As we've been saying right? five years on Exocast, <laughs> um, listen to any of our shows, and, and you'll hear some more maybe new, more nuanced discussion about habitability that goes into that. And yeah, I was immediately when I saw a few figures dedicated to the new high sea habitable zone, perhaps I was biased, but I was like, hmm. <laughs> Especially when that habitable zone is essentially infinite until you'd reach, well, until you reach the next star um, for some of the interior, the cold, the cold high seans um, with the ability to maintain apparently that internal uh, heat distribution. Um, essentially, there was no habitable zone from about 0.05 AU around an M dwarf to the next star that's uh that's your habitable zone so i guess the question was is that useful the more pertinent question is does does this you know kind of does it matter does it improve our um understanding of the distribution of habitable environments the distribution of different planet sizes and can we use this to better communicate the complexities of these transitions to other people or other scientists and i would say probably based on this um no i don't think it's it's adding as much as perhaps they hoped it might yeah, this is one thing I was going to ask you about because the classic habitable zone is defined at two ends by um, losing water. So you, you you freeze out or you go through a greenhouse effect. So I, I was unclear as to what the atmospheric or, you know, oceanic boundaries were for the high sea zone. Like, did they consider um, the water being evaporated and lost through a greenhouse um, effect? 
that's a good question. That, I believe, yes, I believe so. I, I need to double double check. Um, but yes, I believe that was the case. Um, that there was a hydrogen, uh, sorry, an H two flux from the ocean um, that considered that as a function of the incoming flux from the star. Um, but given our our discussions about the um, kind of maybe more simplistic interpretation of habitability here, that wasn't really a concern. It was a temperature at and pressure at the surface of this boundary layer ocean that was the the calculation and there were some vertical te- temperature profiles in the paper i couldn't really see a huge difference between the 10 and the 5 um, mass planet uh, in, in that case um but it was about taking that measurement at this boundary zone so i guess they weren't too interested in what was going on above it um and we haven't t- talked about the observability actually they did have quite a bit dedicated to you know, observing um and potentially biosignature detections given that some of our issues with with the with the small rocky planets are all the atmosphere stuck to the surface really really close difficult to you know get any decent scale height out of that and therefore difficult to do you know transmission spectroscopy through the atmosphere now arguably i'm seeing hannah shaking her head here on the camera but the argument is these are going to have very big scale heights this extended h2 atmosphere and maybe if there is any biosignatures which i think probably won't be some of the ones we might be familiar with on the terrestrial world you could spot them this way so maybe it will be proven wrong in 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 soon uh, and um there will be these high cn planets out there for us to to study i mean this this paper you know was showing what we've known all along that if you've got a hydrogen based atmosphere you extend the scale height of your planetary atmosphere you make it easier to observe different gases mixed within that atmosphere what this paper doesn't explore is the abundance of those gases how they're created where they go how they turn into clouds or how they're sequestered down into the ocean it didn't talk about all of the chemistry and geology that is needed to make the claims of, oh, you can detect these biosignatures for these types of planets. Because the presence of that material in a hydrogen-based atmosphere can have many, many different consequences. We're measuring water in the atmospheres of giant hydrogen-based Jupiters. They don't have an ocean surface below it, not one that we would consider in any way habitable whatsoever. So it it again doesn't add anything new to the literature in that these aren't biomarkers in the way they're presented here. They're just gases and they're not biomarkers until you show us how they're created, where they're coming from, and that they aren't created in any other way. So it's like that's an the instrument simulator. Uh, that's the main test, issue basically. I had with yeah. this is that the whole last section of this is dedicated to those biomarkers and those biomarkers show no evolution um, or counter. No, we need this amount of one com- combined with this amount of the no- another to say it can't have been created any other way. Um, so it, it does feel like a paper which has been built on the idea of getting press coverage rather than the idea of advancing scientific knowledge. And here we are, arguably part of which the press. I think is think is a very very harsh assessment. In my, I mean, I've just had it, but I think it's a very very harsh assessment on my part. Um, I think there is scope in there for really interesting science to be done. I think maybe there's a there's a the fact that they wrote a press release with their with their paper is fine. Maybe the problem was that it got picked up in the way it did by a lot of different. Um, you know, mediums, a lot of different newspapers, you know, was covering it, maybe. And and certainly for me, the first thing I 
I heard about this paper was someone who's not in astronomy sent me a link saying, oh, this is cool. This is in your field. And I was like, what the hell is this? I've not heard of this. And so I had an immediate re- response, which was based not on the paper, but on the press release. So if 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 this press release had gone out, and I guess, I mean, it depends on how they worded it. Of course, they, were always, they, they maybe went a little bit high on the hype machine. Um, but if it had gone out and nobody reported it, um, we would be covering it differently right here. We would not... I, th- I think we wouldn't be so critical. I don't know it's... that that's true. I don't know that that statement invalidates all the things that Andrew has talked about in terms of how no. simplistic the model is. I don't know that the press and the fact that it was picked up and p- potentially warped in some way takes away from the simplicity of the model and what is being presented in, no. in a very complex field. No, I agree. But I think that you could ha- you could write a paper about a simplistic mini-Neptune model and it would be published and you know, you would be able to talk about it in a conference and we would say, okay, that's, I mean, there are flaws in that paper, but it's, it's you know, just like all the other papers. The difference with this one is that we're talking about it because it had a massive media res- response, um, I think. But I agree with that statement that you could, could write a, we've created this model for mini Neptunes and we're trying to understand these things. This is a paper which is saying, these things exist. This is all of the mechanisms. Here's how they would look. Here's how they would be. And here's their biosignatures. It's name. not the press that's gone too far. It's not the yeah. press that has taken that too far. The paper itself is outlining all of that stuff. So sure. I, I agree that if I saw somebody presenting something where like, I've created this model for mini Neptunes. We're trying to understand how the hydrogen atmosphere could cause an insulation temperature, which would, would allow for liquid water conditions. Great investigate that then start adding things in to try and understand all of these other different aspects that you need to but this has just gone we've done this it does this and done that and we've named this new thing after us and uh here we go it it just it i i completely agree with all of the breakdown that we've had but i don't think that in this instance we can blame the press (laughs) no i I i'm was maybe just trying to backtrack on how harsh i had been i know the way you the way you also, described that, I'm not sure. I I I backtrack on my backtracking. <laughs> so I guess with all that backtracking, we probably need to start at the beginning of that paper again. But let's not, and in, instead move over to maybe Hannah's uh, rundown of a few results from the last couple of months, right? Yeah. So what I picked instead of one paper, uh, learning from my colleagues from last Exocast, um, is I picked a series of articles um, <laughs> that all came out in. Uh, Elements magazine, and this series of articles was titled Geoscience Beyond the Solar System. So it actually ties in very nicely to the discussion that we had. Um, and I highly recommend this series of seven articles if you want a more nuanced and critical look at the habitability of rocky planets, uh, including rocky planets with large hydrogen atmospheres. So this is a really nice series of papers. So Hannah, so- this is Elements is the, the magazine of the age you right yes it is yeah so this should be freely available it is freely available um and you can get access to all of these articles on archive as well so it's all out there um, and all available to read so um kind of it really does take us back to the last discussion but when we're searching for earth-like planets the most important question is not are we alone but what do we really mean by earth-like uh basically it comes down to how alone do we want to feel in the universe uh now, geoscience, which is the study of Earth and all of its systems, so its oceans, its 
trees, its air, its core, its interior, its formation, uh, can make a whole series of different kinds of planets Earth-like if we rightfully take into account something called geological time, which is just time over a long period of time instead of a short period of time. Um, and the Earth itself has been a lava world, it's been a snowball, it's been an anoxic greenhouse world, and it's finally become this lovely oxygen-rich world. And in the future, it might move on to being a, again, toxic CO2-rich world. Um, but all of those things are technically Earth-like because they are all the Earth at some point through time. So the biggest question we have is what do we mean by Earth-like? So while we've got this point for Earth-like, we also have that series of points throughout our time of being not what we would consider present Earth-like. We also have other terrestrial planets and moons in our solar system. Of particular interest are the inner terrestrial planets, Mercury, Venus, and Mars, which are also not Earth-like. So we went into detail in Exocast 52b about Venus, so you can go listen to that episode if you want to know more about that. But the question is, are there remote characteristics, the remote things that we can measure for these worlds, enough to go on to determine if they are Earth-like or not? Is the size and the habitable nature intrinsically linked to each other? How close to the Earth, does the radius and mass of a planet need to be for it to be Earth-like? Is the core percentage the key? Is Mercury hampered by the fact that its core is unusually large for its size? Now, we think we have that leeway in the orbital distance. We just talked about the habitable zone. That's kind of taking the leeway in, in how close or far away you are from your star as to whether or not you can maintain this habitable environment. And you can hear us talking more about that on Exocast 48b, where we talk extensively about that habitable zone. But to get down to the review of these papers, this series of articles in Geoscience bef Beyond the Solar System tries to address all of this when looking beyond the solar system at these extrasolar planets. And the series is kicked off with an apt article titled Why Geoscience and Exoplanet Science Need Each Other. Following that is a series of specific papers addressing various nuances from this very remote problem. First is the computational diversity, what these worlds are made of. How dense are they? What percentage is their core fraction? This is then followed by an observational paper looking at polluted white dwarfs. Now that might seem tangential to everything that we were just talking about, but these polluted white dwarfs are thus far the only way to truly measure the interior composition of rocky planets as they are literally being ripped to pieces and gobbled up by their dead and dying stars. So most of these remnants that are measured appear to be rocky with variable fractions of associated ices and carbon species. And we can measure the composition of those and how much there is and try and work out what those planets might have been made of, what their interiors might have been like. Now, ESA's Gaia mission has actually discovered thousands of new white dwarf stars, which has opened up a large new range of places to look for these chemical signatures of these lost planets. So that's something that we should expect to see in the future, becoming even more of a field of trying to understand the interiors of rocky exoplanets. Article four in this series uh, takes a look at the diversity of rocky planets from the interior to the surface expressions. Now, I wasn't quite sure what the surface expressions meant exactly. I had a dig into this one. Um, and it's potentially 
critical but entirely unknown aspect of the plate tectonics. So these surface expressions is how does the surface of the planet express itself? Um, how can we measure the presence of tectonics if it has them or not on other worlds? And how vital is the emergence and sustainability of life on plate tectonics? We don't know the answer to that, by the way. Um, and it is possible that water worlds, so worlds that are covered in these oceans, like we were just talking about in the previous article, could have their own plate tectonics. Due to these high pressure ices at the base of those oceans, pressing on the rocky material that makes up the core or the mantle of that, and that maintains a high enough temperature to keep those ices floating. Because essentially what our crust is doing is floating on a partially melted inner earth. The mantle is a partially melted. It's not fully melted. It's not fully liquid, but it's not fully solid either. So you could maintain these ices at the bottom of oceans in tectonic activity due to partial melt. In fact, we think this might be what's happening on Ganymede, uh, Jupiter's moon. But the composition of the rock itself is also incredibly important for this. So it's a hugely complex problem. Um, and looking at other terrestrial worlds, Mercury, Venus and Mars, those all have what is known as a stagnant lid. They don't have plate tectonics. Their, their crusts are solid. They're not moving around. So we don't see present day volcanic activity or earthquakes due to the motion of plate tectonics, the crust moving, floating on a liquid partial melt mantle. So is that a reason why we no longer see the presence of oceans on Mars? Is that one of the reasons? And these are just huge questions. And these review articles are a beautiful summary of that. So we've got these massive open areas of study to understand about rocky planets and indeed habitability. Now, Article 5 dives into the theoretical uh, with complex GCMs, uh, global climate models, used to model the atmospheres, the oceans, and the chemistry of these potentially rocky worlds. And this paper highlights the current efforts in characterizing and understanding rocky worlds and takes a look into the future where reflected light studies will be the most valuable. So by by then, we're going to need these big telescopes that we're talking about in uh, Exocast 54B. So go over to that one so, to hear more about giant telescopes. Uh, and we need to get these direct images of rocky planets to look at their reflected light. Um, if you want to read about ocean worlds, eyeball planets and CO2 outgassing, this is really the paper in the series that you want to, to look at. Um, this is Article 5 in that series, and it's got a lot of details about all of those interconnected things. Uh, the penultimate paper in this series then deals with the air over there, exploring exoplanet atmospheres. What a title. Um, this paper aims to consolidate all of the lessons that have been learned from the atmospheres of giant planets. So we've been studying giant exoplanet atmospheres for the last decade or two. And how can we use the challenges that we've encountered with that and apply them to the challenges that we'll see with terrestrial sized worlds? The atmospheres of rocky planets is, is tightly coupled to the evolution through the acquisition of volatiles, the outgassing, 
and the surface air or surface ocean interactions and even the ocean surface interactions, which then become the ocean air interactions and a whole chain of events. So this paper actually nicely outlines a lot of the future challenges that we expect in rocky exoplanet characterization from both an observational standpoint, so is stellar jitter, so the motion of the stars or star spots or activity of the stars, an additional noise source that will swamp all of our signals. But it also goes into the theoretical front where we can end up with biases in the detection statistics that we're making or in the detection itself or in the inferred abundance of that, so the amount of the material due to incompleteness in the modeling and our incompleteness in our understanding of planetary and chemistry and geoscience. So this is why we need to talk to the geoscientists. They have a lot of information on the Earth and how materials change under different conditions that we can use for all of this. So even though I'm actually really completely and utterly biased in every way, as you know, if you've listened to Exocast, um, this one is, is one of the better reviews that I've read on trying to understand the future challenges and the current challenges in studying and characterizing rocky exoplanet atmospheres. So I found this one really, really useful to sum up all of the things that we need to be thinking about, asking all the questions that we need to start thinking, how do we get around this? Um, and then the final paper in the series looks at at starting and searching for life on rocky exoplanets. So it's funny, we've got this entire series of review papers that really kind of cover that one paper you were talking about, Andrew, um, and uh, do it really nicely in a, a very nuanced and, and critical way. Um, and this pen paper ends with a, a really great summary of why we use liquid water habitable zone to frame our search for life outside of our solar system. It actually puts me in the camp of going, yeah, okay, it's a good description of what we need to do. Um, it contains a simple and clear outline of the different chemicals we consider biotic and abiotic, how they might be produced and where we might find them in what constraints and concentrations they'll be in. Um, and reading that paper is a podcast all on its own. Um, if you want to know more about some of these processes, you can even go back in time to Exocast 17B and 19B to hear Andrew talk about ancient history, how young, life started. A young on and Earth. enthusiastic Andrew from many years ago. <laughs> I mean, go back and listen and just see how our voices have changed and oh, how our, our tone have changed. It will be absolutely excellent. But you know, this was a really nice series uh, of papers. So I'm going to just sum up because I've been talking for a while now about way too many papers. I'm sorry, guys. Um, but to sum up, the, the reason I focused on these this month is because of how smooth and easy they were to read, but also because the Min Cup is happening right now. So if you're on Twitter, hashtag Min Cup 2021. And that is helping us gear up towards the Exo Cup, which always follows the Minerals Cup in all of its glory. Um, it's a good time to remind ourselves of the minerals, the rocks. Why are they so important? What foundation do they host? And how geology and geoscience really links everything that we do in exoplanet science. The language that is used in these articles, because they're written for a magazine, is for the every person. And I think that our listeners would really enjoy them too. So I really encourage you to go read some of them. Um, now, there aren't enough figures, so I apologize for that. It's an article uh, still. it's a, There's still scientific reviews. Nowhere near enough figures and images in there for my liking. Um, but the smoothness and clarity of the text uh, is really what brings the entire series together. And they really do outline that question that's posed in that first article. Why geoscience and exoplanetary science need each other in a series of seven articles. 
That sounds fantastic. Good, good summary, Hannah. I'd imagine that's a great introductory reading material for students coming in to the field who'd be interested in, in, in bridging that gap. They're in a geology department or geophysics department. They want to get an exoplanet science. What a perfect primer for that. Oh, completely. Absolutely. They're, they're just, again, really smooth and easy to read. And a lot of my astronomer colleagues who are like, oh, rocks, you know, um, probably should know a little bit about them. Perfect. Perfect for that. Let's go and... Um, 100%. We need to know way more about the rocks. Um, and you can look at the hashtag MinCup for everything and anything you need to know about rocks if you want to, to find out more and how volatile the geoscience community is. So I think uh, we will push on and hear some other exoplanet discoveries from you. Yeah, I mean, so one thing to note is that we're now on 10,000 planet candidates on the Exoplanet amazing. Archive, which is, which is quite amazing. I mean, That's incredible. Not, not all of those confirmed, but the vast majority are going to be real once we get future observations. So... You know, that's a, that's a whole level up in terms of an order of magnitude since I think I started my PhD, which is just, wow. Um, and, and five of those are around L9859 or TOI175. So um, this is a multi-planet system. In fact, one of, I think it might have been the first multi-planet system that TESS found uh, in its observations in back in 2019. Um, and so this was, this is a was a three-planet system at that point around a nearby M-dwarf, so only about 10 parsecs or 30 light-years away. Um, and so the small star means that the planets were able to be detected with tests, um, despite the fact they only have radii between 0.8 and 1.6 times that of Earth. So these are very small planets, likely terrestrial. Um, so the first three that, that tests found, were, um, which are all on orbits of less than a week, uh, were confirmed in a 2019 paper by Kostov et al., um, but because the star is relatively small, uh, oh, sorry, because the star is relatively bright and it's relatively small, um, multiple teams actually went after these planets using radial velocities, RVs, to try and find the masses and therefore get the densities and the compositions of these these um, small planets. So uh, last year, Ryan Cloutier published some HARPS measurements, uh, which constrained the masses of the outer two planets at that time, so C and D, um, but weren't able to to, confer, to, to, to detect the inner planet, planet B, which is the smallest in the system. Um, the PFS, or Planet Finder Spectrograph on Gemini, also managed to take some RVs, but once again couldn't detect this smallest world. Um, so in steps Espresso. So this is the most precise RV instrument in the world, um, and it was installed in 2019 and has been, um, well, it was commissioned in 2019 and was basically built on the technology that HARPS developed, um, but installed on a telescope that has five times more collecting area, so on ESO's VLT. Um, so this Espresso team, which was led by Olivier de Mangin, um, took tw- 66 spectra of the star in 2019 and 2020, and the, these have exquisite precision compared even to HARPS. Um, and so the outer masses of these, um, the the planets B and C, uh, sorry, hold on. <laughs> the planets C and D were measured with exquisite precision with with this espresso data to have um, with with the error on the RVs is only around twenty centimeters per second, and you know for for comparison that's about the walking speed of a tortoise. So <laughs> we're able to measure the star um, recoiling from the the masses of their planets by only that kind of velocity, which is quite impressive. Um, and the implied densities of, of the planets C and D are, two, are 3.6 and 5 grams per centimetre cube, which is actually smaller than you expect for just pure Earth-like planets. 
suggesting either that they have a smaller iron core, um, re- which would reduce the density, or there's some volatiles on the uh, in the atmosphere, such as water or hydrogen. Um, we're not sure, um, but probably not Hycian. <laughs> I'll I'll edit that out. Let's just let's just never mention the word Hycian ever again. Oh, okay, arguably, if we're using it even satirically. Don't do it. I was fine. I was fine until I learned that it was hydrogen and ocean. I'm like, oh Uh, no. Yeah, I did think it sounded like you know something from Greek mythology or you know had some. It's it's a just a portmanteau. It's a portmanteau. No, no tranets. So, so the RVs that Espresso took were also sensitive enough to find two outer non-transiting planet candidates in this system. So, taking it from three to five planets potentially. Uh, one of these is a three-Earth mass planet on a 13-day period, and the other is um, only 2.5 times that of Earth, and in the habitable zone of this small star, albeit only on a 23-day orbit, so still very close in um, because of the size of the star there. And for the first time, that inner planet, so planet B, had its mass constrained, and found they found that it only had a mass uh, 0.4 times that of Earth, or half that of Venus. Uh, which is incredibly small to have a, an actual measurement with RVs for. And that actually makes it the smallest ever planet found um, you, using RVs. Uh, because, okay, TRAPPIST-1H is slightly smaller in mass, but that mass came from TTVs. So it's, uh, <laughs> in terms of this um, detection it's method... It's a technicality, but we'll exactly. accept that. We love technicalities. I mean, <laughs> we have so few masses of planets, less than one, less than one Earth mass, right? So mm-hmm. to have one at 0.4 is just incredible. That's um, like a that's Mars, right? That's just a bit bigger than Mars. Mars is about 0.1. So it's about four times Mars. Nice. Um, and this planet too is also lower density than anticipated. So it's only about three grams per centimeter cubed. So there's got to be some volatiles or something going on in the atmosphere of that planet that's kind of puffing it up a bit. Um, one thing that I actually found nice was about how the, the paper and the press release both presented this result in terms of Venus's mass rather than Earth. So they said half Venus mass rather than 0.4 Earth mass. And, you know, given that it's a two-day planet, um, two-day orbiting planet, you know, that's extremely hot, I think it makes sense not to confuse the reader and refer to this as, you know, Earth-like in any way. So referring it to as v- to it being a small Venus, I actually preferred. Um, although some people actually criticise this and, um, you know, we're wondering why you wouldn't just use Earth mass. Um, but, you know, I preferred that. Yeah, I think we course... discussed it on the show when we've, when we've talked about Venus before, is, the, is our you know, pro- propensity to use the Earth as our standard bar. It doesn't really make sense when we're considering planets that in all intents and purposes are very Venus-like. Why not just <laughs> describe them as such? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, of course, the media also, in some outlets anyway, chose to ignore the entire point of the paper and focus on the tiresome kind of there's a habitable planet in the system angle. Uh, and that habitable planet is is only a candidate, so it's not entirely confirmed yet. And it doesn't transit, so we don't know anything about it. And we probably won't in, into the future as well. So, Well, recall, we are the press technically, as well as being <laughs> researchers. We're in an interesting <laughs> situation here. So we don't have to focus on it if we don't want to. No, we don't. We can talk about that nice little Venus that they found. But in, in any case, I mean... This really marks a step up in our ability to measure masses with RVs. Um, and as a prime James Webb target, I'm sure this isn't the last we're going to hear of L9859b. Um, I believe there's also some observations of C that will probably be happening in the first year of Webb as well, if not the second. So, 
Very exciting for this system because we love a good multi-planet system. Yeah, try and get all of the planets in one go. Just so that we can see if we can learn something new. Um, how hot is the star? So it's an M dwarf, so it's going to be only 4,000 Kelvin or less, I think. Okay, so that explains the, the habitable zone being a 23-day orbit. But these are all very much closer to their star, aren't they? I mean, we've got that two-day orbit for the very, very small one, and the others are, are on a few days. So these are these are very different kinds of worlds than than what we would traditionally think of yeah, as it's, these Yeah, it's almost planets. more of an analogue of TRAPPIST-1 than it is of our own solar system, to be mm. honest. Like five planets now on very tight orbits within a month um, around a very small star, so... It's incredibly exciting that we've got the opportunity to be able to actually look and see if we can characterize them as well then, because that's two systems then that we can use to to understand the impact that a star and uh, it has on its its little planet family. Yeah, the difference being that this one is um, has a K-mag of seven, whereas TRAPPIST-1, I think, has a K-mag of like 14. No, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, it's about 13. Yeah, so... Yeah. Um, Maybe 11. So this one should be able to get even better... Um, atmospheres for them trappist so hopefully however it is at the bright limit on what the instruments can do because instruments have a brightness that they can go to and and how dim they can go and unfortunately those kind of ones are trappists at one end and this is at the very bright end so (laughs) we'll we'll see what we can pull out from this instrument but i we're certainly going to see something new from this from james webb i think great Okay, well, I think we definitely had, what was it you said, a juicy month of exoplanet <laughs> news. Um, I hope you all enjoyed listening to us uh, chat about those papers. Um, Hannah, do you mind if I make a, a small personal announcement regarding some, some news that's somewhat yes, relevant? Yes, I was going oh, to mention it. I was going do. to. Um, well, I guess the news uh, for me that's somewhat relevant to the to the podcast is that I've got a new job. Um, so mm-hmm. as of uh, as of November, I will be a lecturer in astrobiology at Birkbeck University of London, um, and I'm very excited about this. It's been a few months, as 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 uh, the team here uh, on Exocast know. It's uh, it's been quite a dark few months here in the UK uh, on the job market, but that's how things are, and I'm very pleased to um, yeah, re- very excited to to start, and we'll be starting an astrobiology degree as of academic year next year with a master's to follow and um, I think one of the only places in the UK to be doing that so if you're considering you know maybe a master's <laughs> in a couple of years or if you're a high school student and you want to study astrobiology come to Backpack we're going to be doing some really cool stuff and I believe Hugh had actually taken this course back in the day so if I have a class full of views I'll be very happy <laughs> <laughs> yeah well uh, we I mean all? on behalf of I mean congrats and you know it's much deserved um, thank you so I'm sure you're going to be a great lecturer yeah. Now it's just me. Now I'm the only one without a permanent job right here. So I've got to get my act together, right? That's oh, okay, Hugh. You're, you're a little bit, um, you know, down the road. I remember we were, we were celebrating you getting your PhD not that long ago, right? With Dr. Hugh. So it, yeah, yeah, I mean, almost Give like four years time. ago. Any yeah. any department would be happy to have you. So don't worry about that, <laughs> I'm sure. It's going to be awesome. Well, congratulations, Andrew. Thank you. Exocast. Everyone, don't forget to check out our other episode this month where we ask the question of how do we study exoplanets from the ground? You can get in touch with us and let us know what you feel about the show on at exo underscore cast on Twitter when we get that working again. Sorry for the brief interlude of 
technical issues. Uh, you can find all of our episodes on our website, exocast.org, and on all of your good podcasting apps. You can add comments there, or you can just uh, send us comments through our buymeacoffee.com slash exocast, where you can donate some money. Uh, and let us know how you feel about the show on there. If you donate $15, you'll get a shout out on the show. You can also donate some money and you can enter a wildcard planet into the Exo Cup this year. That's right, the Exo Cup is coming, so make sure you get on there. If you want your planet to definitely be in the cup this year, you need to head over, donate just, uh, I think it's $20 to get your planet on there. The only other way to do it was to publish a bunch of papers about it, which would be way more expensive than $20, right? So I think yep. it's a good deal. Super good deal. Super yeah. good deal. You can also get Exocast merchandise at our Threadless store, exocast.threadless.com. So head over there for your jumpers, your mouse mats, your t-shirts, your mugs. You can even get face masks and stickers from the Exocup. But thank you, everybody, for listening. Goodbye from us. Bye. 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 Exocast. I have exoplanets. This podcast was brought to you by the Exocast team. Hannah Wakeford, a lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol in the UK. Hugh Osborne, the Test K-Ops Fellow at MIT and the University of Bern. And Andrew Rushby, a postdoctoral fellow in astronomy at the University of California, Irvine. Thanks for listening.